Salutations, everyone, to another episode of The Codex, or Codec. I'm going to be saying that every single episode, so just get ready for it. This week, I'm by myself again, trying to bring some variety to the table. Um, I have got a number of guests lined up who are rearing to go to talk about bits and bobs, completely weird and fanciful things that I'm sure be interesting to listen to and even more interesting for me just to talk to them about it. This week, um, I talk about Pelagius, a 4th century, 5th century uh, philosopher, theologian. And Pelagius was known for being very contentious at the start of the Catholic Church's life, so much so that he went toe-to-toe with Augustine, one of the first church fathers. I will leave that to past me to tell you about him, and more importantly, how that relates to modern-day law. Without further ado, me from about two hours ago. Please, take the floor. Hello, this is me for about 20 minutes after what you just heard. Just want to clarify quickly that I've done this episode in a very similar format to if I didn't edit much of it. So I've left all of my ramblings in here if you want to listen to it. And if not, you can just skip sort of five or ten seconds past the bits you don't want to listen to. So it doesn't become A, over-edited, and B, I don't accidentally cut out any bit of information, however unpleasurable the, the hearing experience of me going, um, ah, uh, might be. Though I will try on... I will try and improve my oratory skills so you wouldn't have to hear too much of that. So anyway, me from about two and a half hours ago, have the floor again, I guess. So, Pelagius. Why, why do I bring up Pelagius? A lot of you, almost none of you, will have heard of Pelagius. He was a ascetic theologian in the 4th and 5th centuries who was very very contentious and his existence at that time was not well received by any of the other i say any many of the other theologians of the time so i've got a wikipedia page just to give you a quick summary of who he was um he was as i've said theologian in the fourth and fifth centuries and he was toe-to-toe and he was directly against saint augustine now for those of you who don't know St. Augustine was a very prominent church father, and by church father I mean one of the original foundations, people who set the foundations for the, well I'm going to say Catholic church, because that's when the traditions, or sorry, that's how the traditions have come down in time. However, he actually set the foundations for the entire global church, though there might be split-offs such as the Orthodox Church and stuff that we'll get onto soon. However, Pelagius was very, very much against Augustine. And Augustine, in his uh, Summa Theologiae, I believe it was, describes his doctrine of original sin. Uh, For those of you who don't know what the doctrine of original sin is, you must have at least heard of the Garden of Eden. So the doctrine of of original sin is Augustine's way of saying human sin because of what he termed seminal presence, which means that we were all present in the loins of Adam, when he ate the fruit from the tree of uh, power and knowledge, or is it truth and knowledge? I don't quite remember. Uh, One thing to clear up, it wasn't an apple. The Bible specifically does not say apples as fruit. Maybe, uh, I don't know, reasons, reasons. So Augustine begins explaining, so Augustine at this time is about the same age as Pelagius, uh, around similar enough so that both of them could have been scholars at the same time. 
Augustine begins saying that since we were present in Adam's loins at that time, we, we have that seminal presence. When we are born, we are sinful. And hence, he uses this to justify the church's number of sacraments, their little sort of traditions and rituals such as baptism and communion and confession in order for us to go to heaven. Right. So one thing that I should probably clear up before I get into any of this, I am looking at this from a very non-Christian, atheist, non-biased standpoint. Well, if, if you can say non-biased, least as least biased as you probably possibly could be, since I'm not of any religion and I'm not looking at this through the eyes of any religion. I'm looking at this purely academically uh, with a few bits and bobs mixed in, which I'll clarify when I do expose my own, like, expose, uh, voice my own faith set. So, Augustine has said this, solidified the church's role in developing humanity to go to heaven. Pelagius comes along and just says, no, I disagree with basically everything you've just said. So Pelagius, in his original works, just disagrees with Augustine, saying that, no, it makes no point for seminal presence to be a thing, since, say, your father commits a crime, you're not going to be charged of the same crime he committed because he did it and you didn't. So it's a very simple um, analogy to, to take there, that it doesn't make sense for your predecessors uh, to be charged for, or to be held accountable, is probably the best word there, or the best phrase, for the crimes of your ancestors. So what Pelagius then takes is a ironic, well, ironically, yeah, ironically, Marxist and or Freudian approach to this, so Marx being Karl Marx, and Freud being Sigmund Freud. So what Marx says is, obviously, religion is the opium of the people. Oh, sorry, the opium of the masses. What does that mean? Basically, that religion is there as a, almost a scapegoat for, uh, for, the, for the masses to attend and to believe in, so that they would uh, stray away, get their minds away from the suffering and the painfulness and the bits and bobs of everyday life. Freud says something very similar. He calls religion a neurosis, the suffering and repressed guilt and anger and whatever, uh, Oedipus complex, repressed sexual drive, your libido, um, in your id, conflicting with your superego to form your ego, um, which is your actual decision-making process. Freud just says that religion is hidden in your id, in your, in your psyche, in your guilt, and you, I say you, uh, humans then developed religion as a way to combat that guilt. So, for example, early humans didn't want to die and have no afterlife. Hence, we came up with the idea of heaven and a saviour lord to provide eternal life for us. That's Freud's argument. Now, what Pelagius says, developing off of all of this, is that Pelagius says original sin which was Augustine's main claim to fame, was a whole of hogwash, and that that's just an excuse for humans being sinful. Now, he also takes this to mean that original sin is a way of the church controlling its people, which we can sort of see... Well, put it simply, to say it controls the people may be a bit harsh, but what it definitely does is create this sense of community which means that people attend it, or the communal events, which you could view that as controlling. Some people could just view that like a garden party, like something very wholesome and something very loving. Pelagius took this to mean the church is controlling people. 
take that as you will, I'm just trying to tell you what Pelagius is thinking. Or at least what his views have translated to become after 1600-1700 years. Now, to bring Augustine back into this, Augustine also terms concupiscence, which basically means that humans are born with a desire and or a impetus to commit sin. And they, uh, Augustine also calls humans massa peccati, just meaning lumps of sin. We are nothing more than lumps of sin. Once again, Pelagius disagrees with this entirely, saying that, no, if you look at the Bible, the Bible says you cannot sin. And Pelagius says that God being all-powerful and being the God of classical theism, he would not make a law that humans cannot follow. Therefore, we are not inclined to do sin. Our entire life's purpose, instead of negating all the sin from our past life, is actually just trying to be better and become more like Jesus. Pelagius also does a lot of weird things, like insults the existence of the Bible. Uh, being an ascetic, he was very much proud of how to go to heaven with just faith, which is a very Protestant idea, which came about a thousand years after Pelagius, saying, okay, we could go to heaven without all of these sacraments, without all of these confessions, communions, baptisms, rites of passage, holy orders, anointing the sick whatever. That's all useless in Pelagius's opinion. Now, that's the theological part of this all done. What has this got anything to do with laws? Well, as I just said momentarily ago, or a moment ago, one of those is correct. I don't know, I don't do English. Um, if any of you do do English, please tell me whether that was correct. He says that laws are created to allow people to follow them. And this, this generates a very good or very stand out political and even philosophical question is what is the well firstly what is the point of the law and secondly how do you make laws so people will follow them let's start with the first half what is a law a law is something a rule a doctrine as it is written into legislation that it is illegal not to follow and illegalities come with punishments so it is something which doesn't warrant a punishment so what we are already saying is that a law is antithetical if you don't do what the law has said so if the law says don't kill someone and you kill someone it is only then when you go against the law that you are charged so what we're saying here is that there is in no innate goodness in following a law however there is only punishment when you don't follow it. This also doesn't mean... So this is this is now straying away from Pelagius' teaching. It's just me going about my way and my opinions of this. So bear in mind, everything from here is basically opinion that has been influenced by Pelagius' works on the Bible and his ascetic ideals into the Bible and doctrine. I think Pelagius himself says uh, that scripture and doctrine is but a mere human fabrication. Of course, not in English nowadays, because you probably spoke Latin back then, and maybe Greek, who knows? Um, that, that's irrelevant. The point is that we are already defining a law as not intrinsically good. There is something only bad when you don't follow it. Now, some of you may already be able to see where this is leading to. So, 
we are all living with the coronavirus and its effects in some capacity. Here in the UK, where I'm based, it's pretty bad. It's, it's, it's not a great situation, I'll be honest, because of a few main reasons. Firstly, just late action. That's just politics. I'm not going to comment on that because I don't know enough about it to say anything useful or anything substantive. Substantive? Substantiative? Well, once again, my spoken English is, is, is failing me. Um, more reasons include just just bad timing. So the peak of the first wave came in about April. It started decreasing towards August. And then before it hit zero cases or zero deaths or whatever, school started again, which meant you had inter-school mingling, which meant that though the kids themselves might not be affected, that would then be passed on to the parents and such and carers and childminders and babysitters, whatever. They would then get infected. And now we are here in January, I think late January. And it is it is it's not looking great. And so the question here is wearing masks, because there have been a lot of people just specifically looking across the Atlantic towards the United States of America. And actually, the day I record this is the day after. Um, so no, the day that Joe Biden is inaugurated that people just don't wear masks. So here's the question. If the law of wearing masks is not put... Sorry. If wearing masks is not mandated, it is not put into law, does that then mean that the law itself is intrinsically good? Because if you think about it, wearing a mask and not killing someone, not stealing, they are all intrinsically good, but the law itself isn't intrinsically good. Do we see that? So if there wasn't a law that said don't kill someone, and you killed someone, that's not a good action, but you're not going to get punished for it. Which brings in a bunch, a bunch of questions about ethics and morals, which will bring us back to the Bible eventually. So, I once again raise the question of how do you make a good law? Well, firstly, given a really bad punishment, when I say bad punishment, something really harsh, like a life sentence for murder, yeah, that's, that's harsh enough, that's pretty harsh. Because people aren't going to murder then, and it should be proportional to the type of crime committed. For example, assault would be lesser than sexual assault, which would be lesser than murder, which would be lesser than genocide or something. That would that would fall under war crimes, likely, which will be a whole different story. And we've already qualified that laws themselves are not intrinsically good or evil, though the morals behind them may be intrinsically good or evil. And I'm using good and evil here as a stark reference back to the, the biblical definitions of the terms, where good is something more, well, just better. It, you know, you are more kind, you are less evil. And then evil, of course, is the opposite of that. You are more evil, you are less kind. So let's bring this back to the Bible momentarily. What does the Bible say about all this? Well, the Bible, as we all know, has a number of laws, a few hundred of them, in fact. Everyone is very well acquainted with the Ten Commandments, because everyone past primary school has learned about the Ten Commandments. Where the Ten Commandments just say, do not do that, do not do that, do not do that, do not do that, do blah, 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 ten times. Because the only reason that Moses gives for us to follow them is so we don't go to hell. So here's the real question. If Moses didn't come back with Ten Commandments on a stone slate... Would those laws have been followed? 
is there in human society, which is probably a good anthropological question, actually, intrinsic good and evil acts, if the laws do not present them so? Think about it this way. The, in East Asia, it's pretty customary just to wear masks because of various reasons, because of pollution, because of um, just how the culture works. It's not illegal not to wear one. Well, at least it wasn't before the coronavirus. I know different countries are taking this vastly differently. But it's not illegal not to wear one. Sorry. Yeah, it's not illegal not to wear one. That makes sense. Double negatives. Maths. However, say there is one day a change in legislation and it now does become illegal not to wear a mask. The act of wearing a mask is no longer... There's a lot of double negatives here, I apologise. It is no longer not good. However, it is now punishable, which means that people will actually go and do the thing that it says to do, otherwise they'll be punished, correct? The, the answer is correct. There is, there is, there is, there's no debate there. Um, I'm saying correct as if there was someone else here. There isn't. It's just me and the screen. Hello, people. So we've already seen that there is no societal or intrinsic good about wearing a mask in the first place. It's just something about yourself. It's sometimes vanity. I don't know why you'd wear a mask for vanity, but people wear balaclavas for vanity. People wear glasses for vanity. So similar things. It's on a similar scale as that, even outside of the pandemic. So the question is of, the question is of, the question is whether the, if, if there's a misattribution of goodness, basically, is wearing masks good because not wearing them is bad due to the law, or are they just good? So, which one came first? I want to say the chicken or the egg, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Pelagius and law. Did the fact that masks... Did, did the fact that masks are good in terms of public health and safety come first, or did the law about it come first, which then caused us as humans to attribute that to masks? We can then draw this all the way back, since it's probably easier to talk about masks than it is to kill people, about the Ten Commandments. And what actually came first? Did it have to take someone in terms of the ethics and morals behind this, to say that this is bad for people not to do it? When Cain killed Abel, did he think that was a bad action because he wasn't punished for it? Well, he was punished for it. But if he didn't know there was a punishment for it, did he think that was bad? Do humans have an inherent desire to preserve life? Is is Are, are humans more likely to achieve chaos rather than order? Well, in terms of the physics, yes. Without laws being present? These are all very good questions, which I do not have the answer to, though I might revisit them with some other people. So, that is Pelagius, Augustine, Law, and some explorations into the origins of, well, human ethics and morals. Let me know what you guys think, if you think that, or guys, gals, and variations thereupon. Do you think that the goodness of, sorry, the, the, the vice of murder came first, or do you think the law had to be employed before anyone thought that that was a bad idea? Let me know, and yeah, I'll pass it on to me in about two hours, once I actually clear up this audio, because I'm really bad at audacity. Thanks for listening.
Well, as promised, that was my ramblings on Pelagius and Law and Augustine and ethics and morals. It was a bit convoluted uh, at times, and that's usually me talking. It's just extremely convoluted. But I hope you enjoy it. Uh, next, you enjoyed it, or you can you can re-enjoy it. I'm not going to judge you. Next, I should have another guest or two, maybe, depending on how the schedule works. And I hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Codex or Codec, and hope you enjoyed. See you next time. Ta-ta.